Long before the first black slaves arrived in America, white slavery was already there in the early days of the British colonies. In the 1600s, the British 13 colonies created a huge demand for labor. This was at a time when Britain was suffering from a large number of unemployed poor people living in the urban areas. Displaced from their land and not being able to find work in the cities, many of these people signed contracts of indenture and took a one-way boat trip to the Americas. Between 1609 until the early 1800s, from a half to two-thirds of all the white colonists who came to the New World came as slaves, who cleared the forests, drained the swamps, built the roads, sweated in the fields, and died in hellish factories. They worked and died in greater number than anyone else. Of the passengers on the Mayflower, 12 were white slaves. Since they had no rights, fugitive slaves laws applied to them whenever they fled their masters. The white slaves of Britain were considered as its unwanted surplus population and thus was so easily expendable. 1641, Massachusetts became the first colony to recognize slavery as a legal institution. Indenture contracts were alienable, the ownership of which could easily be transferred like that of any other commodity. As with slaves, ownership changed without their participation in discussion concerning that transfer. The European establishment coined the word indentured servitude. Webster's Dictionary says the meaning of servitude is the state of being a slave. If any slave resists his master's correcting such slave and shall happen to be killed in such correction, the master shall be free of all punishment. In the British West Indies, plantation slavery was instituted as early as 1627. In Barbados, by the 1640s, there were an estimated 25,000 slaves of whom 21,700 were white. White indentured servants were employed and treated incidentally exactly like slaves. England's next door neighbor, Ireland, quickly became the biggest source of human livestock for English merchants. From 1641 to 1652, over 500,000 Irish were killed by the English and another 300,000 were sold as slaves. The Irish population fell from one and a half million to 600,000 within a decade. Irish fathers were not allowed to take their wives and children on their voyage across the Atlantic, ripping families apart. In 1650, over 100,000 Irish children between the ages of 10 and 14 years of age were taken from their parents. These young children were then shipped to work for the English settlers in the West Indies, Virginia, and the rest of New England. In the same decade, 52,000 Irish women and children were sold to Barbados and Virginia. The list goes on and on. The 
The legal form of contracted indentured servitude was just in reality a lifetime form of slavery. The center of the trade in child slaves was in the port cities of Britain and Scotland. Press gangs were hired by local merchants to roam the street, seizing young boys by force for the slave trade. Children were driven in groups through the town and confined for shipment in barns. What was outrageous was the fact that white children were openly seized from orphanages and workhouses and made to work in factories for up to 16 hours, locked in and without any breaks. Children who fell asleep during work were lashed awake by a whip. Children were also beaten. Thousands of children were mangled by factory machines that left them disfigured or disabled for life without any compensation. These working conditions and this kind of treatment continued to spread to the New World under British control. The white freights were transported across the Atlantic on crossings that took 9 to 12 weeks of travel. They were cramped below the deck of the ship and prone to experience outbreaks of contagious diseases, which often resulted in the loss of half of the human cargo. Also, before leaving the port of England, they were given food rations that were supposed to last for the entire journey. Because the amount of food issue was usually inadequate, Many starved to death before reaching their destination. And if a person died halfway across the ocean, the surviving family members had to pay the fare of the deceased, including their own fare. Usually these travelers started their journey with sufficient funds to pay their way, only to be overcharged when they arrived, thereby causing them to owe more money and face a longer time serving their new masters. As soon as they arrived at their destinations, whites were auctioned on the auction block with children, men, and women separated from each other. Governor Horatio Sharp was appointed by the King of England in 1754 as the Royal Commander-in-Chief of all British forces and Commander of Colonial Forces for the protection of Virginia and the adjoining colonies. This information came from letters from America and London in the year of 1792. Governor Sharp of the Maryland Colony compared the property interest of the planters and their white slaves with the estate of an English farmer consisting of a multitude of cattle. This statement of the governor helps you to understand the mindset of the rich and powerful in the early days of the British colonies. The Revolutionary War was an astounding occurrence in a world still dominated by kings. It established the first important republic since Rome in the middle of what at the time was a wilderness far from Europe. The time is near at hand which must determine whether Americans are to be free men or slaves, said General George Washington.
And it was at this time that the American Revolution began in April of 1775, when the initial battles in the Revolutionary War broke out. Few colonists wanted complete independence from Great Britain. Those who did not want it were considered to be radical. By the middle of 1776, though, many more colonists had come to think it was a good idea because of growing hostility against Britain and the spread of revolutionary concepts among the colonies. By the Treaty of Paris that ended the war in 1783, the colonies had won their independence. While no one event could be pointed to as the actual cause of the revolution, the war began as a disagreement over the way in which Great Britain treated the colonies versus the way the colonies felt that they should be treated. Americans felt they deserved all the rights of Englishmen. The British, on the other hand, felt that the colonists were created to be used in the way that best suited the Crown and Parliament. This conflict, symbolized by one of the rallying cries of the American Revolution, no taxation without representation. It was a war that the British could have easily avoided had King George and his advisors been willing to show the least flexibility. Many in Britain objected to the war and a minority of Americans wanted independence at the time the war began. It was also a war that the American colonists won by the slimmest of margins against the most powerful country in the world. A less well-chronicled aspect of the war was the extent to which it was a class conflict, which led by the land-owning affluent class. It was fought by common farmers who fired the first shot heard round the world. And these first shots were fired by backwoodsmen and the poor of early American towns and villages. For America to be the country it is today, we have had to fight a lot of wars. Many times over, our country did the right thing, and because of that, America has evolved into the greatest nation on earth. However, history records that American leaders have made some very bad mistakes in the past. To name just a few, taking the Native American land by force without giving them any compensation for it. History tells us how our governments in Washington made treaties with the Indians and then broke those treaties time after time. Not only did this country not pay for the land they took, but in the process, there were times that it literally massacred men, women, and children. Many colonial American jurisdictions established debtors' prisons using the same models used in Great Britain. James Wilson, a signatory to the Declaration of Independence, spent some time in a debtors' prison while still serving as an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Fellow signatory Robert Morris spent three years 
from 1798 to 1801 in the Walnut Street Debtors Prison in Washington, D.C., often receiving visits from his good friend, George Washington. Henry Lee III, also known as Light Horse Harry Lee, was an early American patriot who served as the Knight Governor of Virginia and as the Virginia Representative to the United States Congress. During the American Revolution, Lee served as a cavalry officer in the Continental Army and earned the nickname Light Horse Harry. Lee was the father of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and was imprisoned for debt between 1808 and 1809. Debtors' prisons were prevalent throughout the United States up until the mid-1800s. Economic hardships following the War of 1812 with Great Britain helped swell prison populations with simple debtors. This resulted in significant attention being given to the plights of the poor and most independent, jailed under the widespread practice, possibly for the first time. Increasing disfavor over debtors' prisons, along with the advent and early development of the United States bankruptcy laws, led states to begin restricting imprisonment for most civil debts. At that time, growing use of the poorhouse and poor farm were also seen as institutional alternatives for debtors' prisons. The United States eliminated the imprisonment of debtors under federal law in 1833, leaving the practice of debtors' prisons to states. While today the United States no longer has brick-and-mortar debtors' prisons, it has debtors' prisons of private debts, however. A large portion of our nation is carrying a very, very heavy debt load with payments coming due early each month, making it impossible for them to escape the biblical truth. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. It took two major wars, the Revolutionary War with England and the Civil War to rid this country of slavery forever on December 6, 1865. And it was at eight months after the end of the Civil War, the United States adopted the 13th Amendment to the Constitution which outlawed the practice of slavery. In closing, I would like to thank everyone for listening to Plymouth Rock, American History Revealed.